Hi there. This podcast was recorded in early 2023. With the acknowledgement that our world and current events shift every day, we hope you enjoy this slice of life from our community's voices. The human story is the search for belonging. From childhood to adulthood, in joy and in struggle, we all sit in questions of how to make sense of it all. What is our place? Why are we here? What is our story of searching? Join us in conversation with community members, each sharing some of their own story. I am Ben Spratt, and this is Belonging. It is truly a joy to be in conversation with fellow Kerrigan's beloved friend, Dr. Walter Weiss, known around here lovingly as Wally. And there are many, many ways and superlatives that we could heap upon you, Wally, certainly to elevate the legacy of your multi-generational family and the long history that you have in this congregation. We certainly could point to you professionally and what it is to be spending 30 plus years now as the Director of Child Anesthesiology at NYU in Long Island, or perhaps to be able to look at the many ways that we get to see you growing up in this community and continuing to bring your presence into this community alongside Helen. And I would say in the journey of a rabbi, getting to think of those who are willing to lovingly care, embrace, support, and nurture fellow journeyers in this path. And it is a true joy to be in conversation with you today, Wally. Well, thank you very much for having me here. So we want to begin as we always do, with this question. What is your search for belonging, Molly? I think that the way I would approach it is historically, for me, um, though, though my parents never would refer to themselves as Holocaust survivors, they certainly both fled Europe during the Holocaust. My father at 14 was on the kinder transport and sent to England, never knowing if he would see his parents again. He ended up seeing them eight years later in New York. Um, and my mother fled Poland with her mother at the age of 14, almost, um, and never did see her father again. So I grew up on the Upper West Side um, with parents who were not necessarily totally comfortable in the United States. So my father did fight in the Second World War for the 10th Mountain Division, the illustrious 10th Mountain Division. Um, Late 50s, early 60s on the Upper West Side, uh, I remember my parents synagogue hunting when I was little. Um, I clearly remember visits to um, Young Israel on 91st Street. And then I remember coming here with my parents and seeing Rabbi Newman standing on the Bima, who after having been in a, a bunch of other synagogues, was this was the most un-Jewish place I'd ever been. Um, there was on the high holidays. There wasn't a kippah or a talis to be seen in the sanctuary. Um, Rabbi Newman spoke almost exclusively throughout the service in English, um, and I'm not sure that's what my father had in mind. But he said, "I want my children to understand where they're from, where they're going, and to whom they belong." And he signed on the dotted line. Um, and we've been here since I was about nine or ten. I love this place. I love this place. It was just very, very comfortable here. My kids like this place, too, um, which is wonderful. So, yeah, we're, we're very happy here. 
So for your parents, sharing a journey where they got to see their world come apart and coming to a place where they hoped to build, I imagine, more of a feeling of security for you. Growing up, how did your parents talk about Europe and their own childhoods? My mother's father was the chief medical officer, owner, proprietor of a Jewish hospital in what, when he was born, the city was Lemberg. When my mother was born, the city was Lvov, and today we know it as Ukrainian Lviv. Um, so at the time the bombing started in September of 39, my grandfather was taking my uncle to start medical school in London. My grandfather had trained in Vienna, hoping that the two of them would somehow have a practice together someday. As the Germans approached that part of Poland, my mother and grandmother put everything they could into the family major car, which was the ambulance. It served as the ambulance for the hospital and took one of the ambulance drivers, who they didn't even realize at the time they were fleeing until six months later, was in fact Jewish. Um, and they went to Romania, where my grandmother had a cousin. After that, I guess families get a little grating on each other's nerves or whatever. They left Romania. Um, and drove and drove and ended up um, in Marseille, where they spent about a year. My mother went to school at an American school in Marseille, and then they managed to get permission to enter Portugal, and they left the car, left the driver, and much of their belongings in Marseille took a boat to Lisbon before they got visas to Cuba, and they took the boat to Havana, where my mother, again, went to school in an American school for a year and a half or so, um, and developed great friends with other European Jewish exiles in Cuba. Um, some of them, until they've recently passed, they were all her best friends from her time in Cuba. She was in Havana for about a year and a half before they got visas to New York, where my grandmother knew people. My mother was able to finish high school, go to college, she was cutting diamonds, actually, to help support them. Um, and that's my mother's voyage. Um, she and my father were introduced by mutual friends of my, my grandmother's closest friend and my father's mother were actually both anesthesiologists at Beekman Downtown Hospital, two of the first women anesthesiologists in this country. My father, as I said, at 14 was put on the kinder transport, um, also left London because London was becoming ugly um, with the bombings, um, moved to the coast to southern England to Bournemouth, um, where he got a job as a shipping clerk in a trucking company. In 1942, his parents managed to get out of Munich, but his mother took a train to Lisbon with the family story as 52 shipping crates with the china, the silver, rugs, paintings, sculptures, art. And a week later, my grandfather flew commercially in 1942. He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jew and was abducted by the Gestapo in Lisbon um, and was held for about 10 days, which was not his first time. He was also um, arrested Kristallnacht in Munich um, and was kept for a few days then. My grandmother managed to get him out. Nevertheless, he got out, and they made it on a 
steamer to New York um, a few months later. So for you growing up, your father, your parents had made their way, certainly found this to be a home for them, the synagogue, the city. For you growing up, did you feel like the Upper West Side was your backyard? Did you feel that this was home and haven? A hundred percent. So what was it like? It was very different then. I grew up on um, West End in 91st, and when I was 11, my parents moved to Central Park West in 88th, where my mother still lives. The distance between Central Park West and Broadway was a no-man's land, and the only way we were allowed to go to Broadway was to go to 86th Street. You could go east and west on 86th, but not on any of the side streets because they were, quote, too dangerous. Um, I'd never been on them. We weren't allowed to. I remember in high school, we had to do a museum trip, a field trip to the Brooklyn Museum. And I'd certainly been in the subway many, many times before. I'd never been to Brooklyn. Um, And I remember going with one of my classmates by subway to the Brooklyn Museum. And it was a massive adventure. I discovered that there were other parts of the city. (laughs) I think many of us would say, what's the point of ever leaving the Upper West Side? I mean, you've got everything you need right here. Exactly. This is a major part of me, I think. Um, When I graduated high school, I said, I'm getting out of the city. I'm never coming back to the city. You'd have to be out of your mind to ever want to live here. Um, (laughs) And I went to college undergraduate in Vermont. Um, I went to graduate school in Connecticut. And then I went to medical school in Ireland. And most of that time, I still was convinced I would never come back to the city. And then I remember as I was finishing medical school and I was interviewing for residencies, actually my first choice was to the University of Vermont. And I had a great interview there and I had a lovely time there and a great day. And um, I remember it was snowing brutally that the day of my interview and at the end of my day there and all the interviews um the chairman of the the chief of the residency said you know are you staying in vermont for a few days and i said no i actually have a flight back to new york and he said you know i'll I'll take you in my truck and he put me in his pickup truck and on the way to the airport he said you know we'd love to have you you're a great candidate but we have to tell you if your goal is to come to the University of Vermont and stay here, um, there's a list of people who have graduated out of this program who are waiting for someone to die to get back here. So my advice is find a big city program and you'll probably open your choices better than just being in Vermont. So I trained in back in the city. I came back to the city and, and I don't know if it was magnetism or what, but I've been here ever since. So tell us a little bit about the journey into medical school school and the call of the doctor. I think many people would see this as the eternal hope um, that many Jewish parents would have of their children. Uh, obviously, I broke from that and disappointed, I'm sure, my parents immensely. Somehow, obviously, you were able to feel that calling and would love to hear more about what took you into this path. My parents and my grandmother, probably especially my grandmother, said essentially you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or if necessary, an accountant. But the the sum of it all is you never know when the Cossacks are coming over the hill. Um, That was my my grandmother's philosophy. You never know when the Cossacks are coming, and you have to be able to pick up with what's between your ears and start life afresh somewhere else. 
So my mother's father, again, was an obstetrician gynecologist, and my father's mother um, was an anesthesiologist who you know, went to medical school in Munich and actually did her PhD dissertation on an anesthesia topic. Um, I actually have her thesis at home in, in German. Um, the quest for science, the, the learning, um, I guess I was born with that. I had that at the um, University of Connecticut Health Science Center doing research after my master's degree. And I shared my lab with an Italian pathologist that I became very, very good friends with. And he basically took me by the collar one day, smacked me on the head, and he said, you're essentially, you're European. He said, why are you not looking at European medical schools? Because you can get into them. And I said, well, I never thought of it. And we pulled out the WHO directory of international medical schools, where they also listed those approved by um, the United States government and those who took some Americans. And I picked four of them, the three French programs in Belgium, which were very, very good schools, and the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin. Packed my suitcase, took my dad, and off we went to Brussels. And I looked around the University of Brussels, the University of Louvain, and the University of Liège, um, and they all basically said, you know, you want a spot, you're in. Um, and they also said, you know, you really don't have to do the first year. You can just place out of the exams, go home, have your summer, take the exams in September. You can place out and start the second year of school. We came back to the States and I called my boss in Connecticut and I got my job back. And about 10 days later, I got a, my father, I was in Connecticut. And my dad said, you just got a telegram from this place called the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland asking if you're still interested. So apparently there was a mail strike in Ireland, which is not an unheard of thing. Um, so there was no transatlantic mail at all coming to her from Ireland. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. So we called them and I went and I was there for the next seven years. I stayed through my internship. And I imagine that there were some gifts that bloomed in Ireland. Um, uh, yes, as, as my wife likes to say, I came home with more than my luggage. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, January of my first year, there is an annual conference of the Irish Medical Student Association. And the second night there, the Saturday night, there was a formal dinner for all the Irish medical students, one sober time of the weekend, briefly. And after the dinner, there was a dance, again, things I will never forget, um, a guitarist, an accordion player, and someone on the drums. They were quite appalling. Um, but I was sitting down listening to the awful music, and I heard at the table right behind me a young woman's voice, clearly Irish, intelligently discussing with someone else Woody Allen films. So I turned around and joined in the conversation, and that, shall we say, the rest is history. So obviously then the beginning of you and Helen. Yeah. And as you move forward and think about the journey that then brought you both back here to New York and the beginning of a new chapter of belonging here, did it feel like just a continuation of childhood or did this feel like this was a new New York that you were having to reacquaint yourself with, to fall in love with again? Um, you know, I've, I've never actually thought of it that way, but you're entirely right. This was a continuation of my childhood. This was me back on the Upper West Side 
back in this community, um, back in this congregation, coming back to New York was, was yeah, sort of like, okay, you, you had your nasty teenage years, um, and then you realize that, yeah, this, this, is, this is where I belong. This is where I belong. You know, I've always said to my friends and colleagues, all my colleagues on Long Island, um, I can live in the city perfectly well, and I can live in the woods. We have a house in Vermont. I live in the woods. But suburbia makes no sense to me. I, I can't live in suburbia. Um, and, and their feelings are exactly the opposite, but that's okay. That, that's who I am. <laughs> Look, and there's a, a reason why we get to see a world where we have people who inhabit almost every corner of it, and everyone you know, hopefully eventually finds their place of belonging. Yep. For those of us who feel called into the beat of the concrete jungle, doesn't mean that there isn't the appreciation of wanting to also leave it from time to time. I'm curious yeah. for you, though, as you think back over you know, your grandmother's philosophy uh, that rippled a little bit into your parents, do you think the Cossacks are coming? Do you feel like the shadow that has crept into prior generations is still there lingering, maybe even at the periphery of your own vision today? I don't think it's a very dark or, or deep shadow, but it's not gone. Um, it is disconcerting to see the armed policemen and the holidays in front of the building um, and to know that it's good to have them there. I'm, I'm, it's very sad to know that we have to have them there, but I'm glad they're there. I'm, I'm very happy we have our house in Vermont. There's actually a lovely little Jewish community growing in the state of Vermont, and we're 80, 80 miles from the Canadian border, God forbid. So if we can pivot for a second, Wally, I, I'm really curious if we could dive a little bit more into the scientist and the doctor in you for a second. Um, what of you today, when you think of the way you look at the world, is still shaped by that scientific method, by that lens of curiosity, by that sense of a universe of mystery and wonder? How does that come forward in your day-to-day -day life? I hate to say it, but it almost doesn't. Without ranting too much about medicine in the United States today, the system is broken. The desire for scientific inquest and inquiry and pursuit of excellence is, I guess I would say, not all that encouraged. We are being driven by protocols and metrics and evidence-based medicine. So Evidence-based medicine basically means how do you successfully treat the most people in the same way to get two standard deviations from the mean um, successfully treated. None of my friends went to medical school for that. If, if people were Chevrolets coming off the assembly line and everyone was the same, when that part breaks, you know how to fix that part, and it's the same for absolutely all the Chevrolets that came off the assembly line. Even though, you know, the old saying in medicine, when you hear hoofbeats, you're supposed to think horses, because most of the time it's horses, but it's not always horses. And every once in a while, there will be a zebra in front of you or something else galloping by. I have the luxury at this point in my career 
to be able to tell them to go to hell. I treat my patients the way I think they need to be treated. I give the medications that I think they need, and I don't give the ones that I think are unnecessary, though they are given standardly to the vast majority of people for the vast majority of reasons. You know, I feel like for so many of us who embark on careers, there's a a spark, a spirit that moves us, that motivates us. And along the way, invariably, we have organizations, institutions, protocols, procedures that um, strip away in many ways the very elements that sparked um, that journey. And I think it's really wonderful, actually, to have the example of how do we hold on to it? How do, that, how do we reclaim that? How do we continue to feel like we ourselves are anchored in the things that we're devoting our life and time to. So how do you keep yourself centered on humanity? I mean, is it, does it come easily? Do you have to pause for a moment and say, I can't just put this person into a diagnostic mold. I need to look at who they are as an individual. I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? You know, I, when, I, when I have residents and, and students and when I'm trying to teach, um, the science is all in the books, the graphs and the charts and the protocols it's it's all in the books what 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 i can teach them is the humanity part of it um they don't teach doctors and residents and medical students to touch people with their hands everyone puts gloves on um the chances of you picking up an infection from someone who isn't in fulminant sepsis um by not wearing a glove is is negligible it's like shake hands with people with my hands. I don't put gloves on. Um, the human connection is an, is one of the highest imperatives in medicine, and I'm not sure it's taught well. So I spend about 70-odd percent of my time at work um, taking care of kids, um, and I love taking care of kids. Um, they never lie to you. They tell you the truth. If something hurts, it hurts. If it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt. When kids get sick, they get sick very fast. And when they get better, they get better very, very fast. I tell young residents and medical students, when you take a small child through a major surgery, a six, eight, 12-hour surgery, wake up at the end of it, and without a parent anywhere near them, they look at you and say, thank you for taking care of me. I just melt into a puddle, and I don't need a paycheck for that, that year. It's, there's nothing better on the planet than that for me. And the day after surgery, the kids are saying, can I go to the playroom and play with the other kids? And I think to imagine that there is a truth and honesty and authenticity that we are naturally tapped into as we enter this world is actually a beautiful lens on humanity. I think many of us have you know been incubated in an environment where we've come to see that humanity is perhaps naturally negative or naturally selfish and that that is what we try to change or evolve over time. I think it's in many ways even more powerful to imagine yeah. that maybe as adults, we need to reconnect with the inner child, the honest being who's able to immediately tap into the gratitude, the appreciation, and also the annoyance, but from the moments that matter um, and perhaps not just what the people around us are associating. And I think that that's something that I come back to again and again, because obviously, you know, in the context of religion, we get to see some of the very same dynamics take place as organizations, as religious figures like rabbis and priests and imams come to the place where 
we create more and more distance from the very people that we mean to serve, not because we intend to, but because as we try to scale the meeting of needs, we try to find the most efficient ways possible in the most equitable way possible. And what often gets lost along the way is, again, that direct contact, that recognition that all of these industries, all of these professions started because of a human need. What a gift for those who get to learn under you to have that lesson in their ears. Because at some point I or another, that's through. I'm sure. And at some point or another, I think we all lose our way a little bit. Even those of us who may have a you know, ascending career path, at some point, how do we come back to the very thing that started us on this journey? Um, well, I want to offer gratitude, Wally. Uh, this is a gift to not only hear a little bit of the story that ripples behind you and beneath you, but also some of the story that you're a part of shaping here. And I just feel grateful to be one of the many who appreciates going through these pews and through these walls, um, feeling your love and your care, your humanity. And thank you for bringing a bit of your journey and your search for belonging here to Rota Shalom. Thank, thank you very much for having me. This has been um, cathartic in a way. Um, yeah, I've, I've very much enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us and listening to this story of belonging. Stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Ben H. Sprepp. For more information about CRS, visit us online at rotofshalom.org.